Hey everyone, and welcome to Be The Leader You Deserve podcast, where my mission is to inspire you to ask yourself, are you the leader you deserve? Hi, I'm Jill Handley. So excited to be here with you today. This is season seven, episode 20, truthful and transparent leadership, even when it's hard to hear. Today, I am joined by 2019 National Distinguished Principal, Chrissy Jeanette. Chrissy leads Blades Elementary, located in Seaford, Delaware. Now, Blades Elementary was recognized in 2021 as an ESEA National Distinguished School. So this summer, I had the opportunity to meet Chrissy in person at the NAESP conference, and I felt immediately connected with her. I know our schools are both recognized at the ESEA conference. I think that's where our conversation started. And then we started finding out that we have a lot of similarities going on with things. So I'm so excited to have you here with me today, Chrissy. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me, Jill. And yes, I'd like to say, yeah, we felt immediately connected at the NAESP conference. So that was great to get to meet you in person. <laughs> All right, Chrissy. So as we get started, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and the school that you lead? Sure. So um, I am the proud principal at Blades Elementary School. Um, We have um, kindergarten, first and second graders at our school. And we have currently, I believe we're at 429 of them, but that's changing as we're still early in the year with enrollment. Um, We have Many of our students are multilingual learners. We actually have about 35% of our students who um, were identified as English language learners. So um, we do have a very diverse population um, and we are a Title I school, as you said. So, yeah, and I know that um, I think because of the similarities of our demographics, that's one of the things I think that we were both in to one another over is like, hey, your school looks a lot like my school. Um, albeit I'm K-5, but wow, that's a lot of littles in place. <laughs> it, it is a lot of littles. It's always exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Never I can, a dull I can, moment. <laughs> I can imagine. So Chrissy, clearly, you know, being a national distinguished principal, having a nationally distinguished school, um, your leadership is just exemplary. And you've got lots of things to be proud of. But when I ask you to reflect upon the thing that you feel most proud of in your tenure as a, as a school leader, what would you say that is? Um, I think it's um, inclusivity. We really talk a lot about um, in our school about being inclusive. And um, for our students, we talk about being kind to people who are not like you, who might not look like you or sound like you. Um, we also have an autism program in our school. So I have a, close to 20 kids who are identified um, with autism and they are a huge part in our school. They're within our general education classrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we really work to promote that inclusion piece for all learners in our school um, and looking at what every child needs. So not based off of a classification or an identification, but what does each child need to be successful and grow academically? So you and I, that's another, another kindred spirit for us is that, is that um, 
theory of inclusion, like how passionate we are about that. And so, you know, when I present at, at different places, one of the, the, and I'm sure that in your experience too, one of the, the things that you, I often hear is, how do you get all of your teachers to buy into that? And, and some things that I've heard is, you know, at my school, um, there's this division to where the regular ed teachers think that, you know, the job for their multilingual learners is the job of the ESL teacher. How do you get your staff to buy into such um, an opportunity for inclusion to where they're all our kids? So what steps have you taken to kind of create that culture of inclusion? Um, so one of the things, we are a data-driven um, district, and we um, focus a lot on individual student growth data, both behaviorally, academically, socially, all of those pieces. Um, and we're very transparent with that data um, in our teacher, in our PLC room mm -hmm. where our teachers meet. Um, so student data is posted on the walls. We have deep conversations about, oh, you did really well on this common assessment with your students. Um, how, what did you do? And we talk a lot about that. Um, we used to have that culture at our school where teachers felt like, you know, if I could just get a student identified with a label, then mm -hmm. they're not my problem anymore. Um, and we really spent a lot of time with professional development. Um, quite frankly, we stopped pull-out support mm -hmm. and made it all push-in support. So um, the kiddos weren't going anywhere. <laughs> they're yours, whether they're identified or not. I'll push in additional support to help you um, meet their needs, but they're not going into another room down the hallway. So um, that was really a changing point for our teachers because they felt like if their data was going to be transparent and posted, mm -hmm. and if the students were staying in their rooms, um, that then we could do some professional development to help them learn strategies to use with their students. It sounds exactly like the steps that we took as well. And so, cause I think sometimes, you know, I don't know that I think any teacher sets out to say like, that's not my, sometimes it stems from fear of, I'm not sure what to do. Absolutely. Um, and, so, and so to your point, cause we did the same thing. We have very little pull out. Some of our newcomers, um, just to get a little bit more of, of that, that um, intensive support. But for the mm -hmm. most part, and I'm sure you've, you've figured the same thing is that what we have found is what's good for our multilingual learners or our special needs students. Oftentimes those practices are good for all kids shouldn't all kids embrace and have that opportunity and as our teachers became more comfortable with some of those strategies suddenly that that culture shift really started absolutely that's exactly what happened here um and like you said i i don't think anyone um i think it did stem from a place of you know being a little fearful of not uh -huh. knowing what to do um and our population had changed so, yes. you know, that also was a shift for teachers who had been teaching for a long time, but now the students in their classroom, you know, may look different and may sound different than they had in the past. So giving them those strategies um, and that professional development really did help us a lot. The other thing I heard you say that I think is such a, uh, an important, powerful piece um, when you start to work with, with a new demographic, period, right, regardless yeah. of what that looks like, um, is a focus on the growth aspect and not necessarily the proficiency aspect. And again, not that we're not striving for all of our kids to be proficient and beyond, right? 
but sometimes we don't see that particularly with some of our multilingual learners you know they're they're coming they're new to the country they're trying to learn academic content in another language at the same time so we know that that language proficiency may take a couple of you know a few years to even get that proficiency so i think you know fear comes to is because teachers have such high high standards for themselves and suddenly when when learners are coming in with additional needs, that proficiency may not show up in year one from an academic perspective, but when we start to measure growth and celebrate that, that feels good, right? Because we're, we're yep. looking at, at the different starting points, you know, we're all trying to get to that finish line, but we're almost honoring the different starting points. And I think that that was a turning point for us. Um, I know in our district, one of the measures of growth we utilize is, is MAP. Uh, what, what, what measures or data sets do you all use when you're looking at growth? Um, we, we use dibbles, um, for reading. We also, um, we have, um, a, a reading curriculum that we adopted, um, gosh, eight years ago now, I guess, um, which is called bookworms. Uh -huh. It's through open up resources. It's actually a free curriculum. Um, it is based off the science of reading. Uh -huh. So we use some of those internal measures that are in that program to monitor our students, especially at this level, are they progressing through the the skill groups mm -hmm. in learning how to read? Yes, yes. And doesn't it, it's so exciting because it's almost like once our population starts to diversify even more, it opens so many opportunities that I think that we had been not intentionally closed-minded to, but I think that like our, in, our um, equity, diversity, and inclusion, just like it was like a floodgate just opened and it yes. was like, wow, what, what beautiful diversity we have and how can we utilize this to build upon this and appreciate one another's cultures and things like that. So it, it would it really started, you know, skyrocketing once we embraced it through an asset lens and not, a, you know, what, what are these, what do all the kids and the families bring to us as an asset versus, hmm, what are they missing as a result of? Right. And that, I was actually just going to say that, Jill. Um, <laughs> I think that, um, you know, when we started realizing what a gift it is mm -hmm. to learn multiple languages and wow, as adults, we wished that we had had that opportunity, you know, when we were younger. And and so when we started looking at it as an asset um, and embracing the cultures and our families, um, that was really a turning point for us as you said. Now, are you all dual language immersion, Chrissy, or no? Yes. So I have um, two classrooms at each grade level that has a dual language immersion program. It is Spanish. Okay. So, um, so it's a two-way model. So I have um, about 50% of the students are native English speakers and 50% okay. of the students are native Spanish speakers. However, because of my high population of multilingual learners, uh -huh. they're not all in the Spanish immersion program. So we have them in every classroom in the building. So um, that- Yeah, that it's kind of like a little school within a school. And I, I applaud you for, for leading both of those because um, we do not have a dual, we have a dual language immersion school in our district. We are not it. So that's really, you know, two different things you've got going on. You've got, you know, just your regular education and supporting multilingual learners, but at the same time, you've also got 
got that dual language immersion going on. So that's that's a lot to juggle, Chrissy, as a as a leader. Yeah, it it is a lot to juggle. Um, it is wonderful though because we do have the Spanish speaking staff in mm-hmm. our school. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just part of how we do school. So they're part of our school. And our parents appreciate the fact that um, there are, you know, staff members who um, can speak their language and communicate with them. And our immersion teachers pitch in and help with families all over the building if we need um, beyond language line, because we do use the language Mm -hmm. line. But if there's, you know, a conference or something special that we need to communicate, we also have those um, staff members available. That's awesome. Now, if you're like me, when when our population kind of shifted and I received the phone call of now we're going to have an English as a second language unit, I was like, oh, what does that mean? And so I, you know, I'm the first one to say that, that I'm so proud of all the things that we've accomplished. But at first I, I messed up a whole lot. Like I made a whole long, a whole lot of missteps with not knowing. But oh, I, yeah. <laughs> and, refl- <laughs> and when I reflect upon my leadership as a whole, that happened a lot. But I, I you know, I say that I, some of the things that I failed at the first, second, and maybe third time, I, I have really grown to refine. And those are some of our most powerful practices now. And I think that's true for, for most leaders. So when you reflect upon all the things that you've learned as a leader, what do you think are two or three things that you feel are the most impactful things that you would want to share with listeners to help support them as fellow leaders? So I have a saying that um, what people don't know they make up and what they make up is worse than the truth usually. (laughs) So Um, We really try, I really try to communicate and perhaps in some instances over communicate with families, with students, with staff members um, to kind of explain the the whys about things Mm -hmm. and and be really transparent um, because I think that families and, and staff appreciate the honesty and um, being upfront with them and not just making decisions kind of behind closed doors and not really sharing the thought process behind it. That's probably my biggest one. Communicate, communicate, communicate. Yeah, I, I know that's one that will just tear a culture apart because it breeds so many things. It can breed mistrust. It can breed, you know, unhealthy competition. It can breed like, you're, you know, if, you, if people start making, you know, filling in the gaps on their own, if, if you don't fill right. them in for them. And exactly. so there's about 28 versions of, of the story to where, uh, yeah, I agree with you. I don't think that you could ever over communicate. And I love, you know, kind of looping in the families as well. Because sometimes I think as, as leaders, you know, we're real cognizant about making sure that we're, we're, we're clear and kind with our staff. But I don't know that we always are as intentional with uh, we'll communicate that, hey, this is coming up. But sometimes we don't always communicate with families on the front end or getting their voice heard um, or just sometimes we think they don't care about the why. But like you, I've found that when we are working. We always go at Kenwood, we talk, you know, with Brene Brown, clear is kind Um, and people understand that. And so when when people understand the why, I think that leaves a lot less confusion on the back end. Yeah, I agree with you on that one. 
So, so um, speaking of, of, you know, things that we've learned and things that we kind of lead by, what are one or two things that you wish that you had learned in leadership prep that when you got the job, you're like, where was this class? <laughs> um, the class about how to talk to parents. Oh. Really, we never look. Sometimes those are difficult conversations. Yes. Um, and difficult conversations for different reasons, you know. Yes. Um, and and that's hard um when you've not had that experience before. So I think building that trust with families, and I wish I would have learned about the importance of those relationships and trust with families. Um you know, I'm fortunate. I've been at the same school. This is my ninth year. Mm-hmm. So I have had some of the same families and I have siblings and all of that. And now because we have those relationships, they'll say, oh, you know, yeah, I know, Dr. Jeanette, uh, you have my older kids. I know you have my kids best interest at heart. But, you know, but if you don't have those relationships with the families, I think that that makes the conversations even harder with parents. And I wish I would have learned that in in my admin prep classes. Yeah, same. And I think just family and people, right, beyond a pop-up literacy night or join the PTA, yeah. neither of which are bad things. I want to make sure I'm clear on that. Right. Uh, but, but it does feel like family engagement was or at that time for me that it wasn't even engagement it was involvement um you know that was kind of glossed over uh really i remember the only things talking about were about like make sure you have a strong pta and again i'm not saying that's a bad thing but the bigger context of uh the importance of engaging families as true partners yeah that was not some that was in none of my classes <laughs> no none of my classes whatsoever <laughs> So, so we know, Chrissy, on a day-to-day basis that we have challenges firing at us left and right. Um, but when you reflect upon your time that you've been a school leader, what do you consider to be your toughest challenge? And then how did you go about overcoming that? Okay. The toughest challenge, and I've been in education for a long time, um, <laughs> was COVID. And I know that sounds so simplistic, but it was just so unprecedented and I can remember thinking, I don't, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to do in this situation. This is unprecedented. Um, and I think I'm going to go back to that communication piece, being real transparent with families and with staff. You know, I mean, you know, Jill, the rules were changing every day, right? (laughs) Every day we were getting updates and rules were changing and what we were doing instructionally looked different. And were kids coming in the building? Were kids not coming in the building? Were we on Zoom? Were we doing a hybrid? And (laughs) it was just so fluid um, that I think that um, our team at our school, um, was very flexible. They were troopers. Our staff and parents were great. Our kiddos were wonderful. Um, But really just building, having that team and being real transparent and communicating again, because that was a hard time. Yes. I'm yes. glad it's over. I mean, you know, I'm glad we're more normal now. <laughs> yes, yes. So let me ask you this, Krista, because that brings about a really, you know, a great think about for leaders. And so, you know, like so many of my guests, COVID was definitely that biggest challenge. And and 
for the reason that you said, you know, we are never, well, I think some people expect us to have all the answers, but the truth is, is that as a leader, you're never going to have all the answers, right? Right. Um, So that, so on a day to day, pre-COVID, we were kind of accustomed to not always having all the answers and that was okay. But in a case like this, it was like no one had any answers. So, so how do you balance when, and let's hope that we never have such a situation like this again, but let's just talk even on a smaller scale. How do you balance when something, a crisis like this or a challenge like this emerges? Um, how do you balance, oh gosh, I'm scared too and I have no idea what I'm doing with Trust me, I'm your leader and I'm going to get you through this. Um, I think it was that communication piece because I think I said those exact words um, <laughs> multiple times. Like, hey, guys, I'm really not sure. <laughs> I, I'm trying to figure this out with you. But together, collectively, as a team, we can figure out ways to move forward in the best way possible for our school. Um, you know, so, and we, we had those conversations as a staff, as I'm sure you did with your staff and, um, many other leaders, you know, I'm not sure what to do. We're gonna, we're gonna try and figure this out and we're gonna do what's best by our kids, no matter what. Mm -hmm. Um, we just don't know what that looks like right now. Yeah. And I think that does go back to, um, spending so much time up front focusing on those trusting relationships with all stakeholders so that when something like this happens, even when you don't have all the answers or even part of the answers or even any answers, right? um, because you've built those relationships and they, they come to trust you. They know, they know that no matter what, we're going to get through this. Right. Right. Um, And so that's, you know, that's one of the biggest things that with new I've got these ideas and what should I focus on first? I'm like, and it goes back to the same thing is, is just take the time to go slow with relationship building and that trust. And to your point, I'm going to add in everything you've said about communication um, to build that trusting environment, because then you can start moving forward. But I think a mistake that I see so often, I'm sure you do too, with working with other principals is that let me rush to try to make some improvement decisions without having the trust of anyone. And then suddenly it's almost like they spend their whole career backpedaling. Yeah. Our superintendent has a saying, which is sometimes you have to go slow to go fast. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's a very true statement, especially when building relationships, those trusting relationships with all the stakeholders. Yeah. And I know I see, I see so many principals who take over, even if they're not a new principal, but taking over a school that, you know, and every district calls it something, whether, you know, you call it a school in assistance or, you know, a school on the cusp or schools that are kind of like in the lowest performing in the state. It's so often it feels like those principals are being expected to drink water out of a fire hose, right? Do all this, do all this, do all this. And it always perplexes me why when we're looking at schools that are most struggling, they aren't given the time (laughs) to just focus on what matters first, because it's almost like, I want to say like, trust it, just trust to give this, this new baby principal one, two, three years to really invest in relationships. And I promise everything else will come. Yeah. So actually, Jill, we were one of those schools that was in the lowest performing um, in the state of Delaware. 
Um, so, uh, you know, we've done the entire turnaround. Um, Ooh, talk more about that one, Christy, because, you know, everyone wants to inquiring mind wants to know, uh, you know, what does that look like? Yeah. So we were, um, identified actually our entire district. Um, there were three schools in our district that were elementary schools that were identified as being, um, some of the lowest performing in our state. Uh-huh. Um, we had a wonderful superintendent at the time um, who was new and he hired new principals, as you say. Um, and we, um, I was one of those people and, and, and we did spend some time because you have to spend some time getting to know your people and seeing strengths of people so that you can maximize those strengths in a way that's going to be more meaningful for students Um, making sure that people are in the correct grade level positions. They're working with, um, you know, other teachers to improve their craft. Um, As I said earlier, we're a data-driven district that came out through that process of Mm -hmm. turnaround in our district. Um, So being very transparent with the data and um, really looking strategically at student growth, um, and doing away with, um, those labeling pieces Yes, and making sure that we were taking care of every student in every classroom and that everyone had the same equal access to a high quality education. And that's another reason why I think, um, that focusing on growth is so important because, when schools have been labeled one way or the other, you know, that's why I say it, it always, it's so disheartening for me to see that because man, those teachers and that principal, they're working hard. They, they are working hard. There's not a person <laughs> education that is not working hard. I'm right. And so, so to, to, to have your hard work met with the label of failing school or whatever acronym we want to use for that, that's just so disheartening. And so, you know, I've talked with a couple of principals this season who've kind of had a turnaround story very similar to yours in the sense of the first thing we've got to do is start to lift our people up, you know, because they've just been so beat down despite everything that's going on and finding little things to start to celebrate. Um, And I know, you know, with that growth piece, that's one of those things. And then you just said that thing too, looking for people's strengths. A failing school is not necessarily full of failing teachers, right? Or, or a failing leader. Now, some, sometimes, sometimes, you know, the leader can, can, can use an adjustment and so can some of the teachers, but more times than not, it just has to do with reframing the mindset, like you said, and starting to look at people's strengths. And I think as a leader, when you do that with, with the big people in the building, that models for them to do that with the little people in the building. Yeah, absolutely. Well, congratulations to you. That's an awesome success story. I knew that you were nationally, I didn't realize that you'd come from turnaround status. That's amazing. I'm even more impressed, Kristen. How awesome. How awesome. Yes. So clearly a lot of that took a lot of hard work. Um, And we know that this job could be an around the clock thing. 
but we can't allow it or we all burn out in about the first year or two. So um, one of the things we've been talking about this season has been the importance of setting boundaries. One of the things I found is that we're all pretty not good at that, but that we're all trying. Um, so, and we all have a few different strategies. And I think this is the one place that all leaders can probably grow in is how to set professional boundaries for themselves so that they can be better for themselves, their family, their staff, everybody in their lives, right? So what are some strategies, Christy, that you've put in place or attempted to put in place to set boundaries? Okay. Well, I'm still work. I'm working on it. <laughs> I'm real good at it. Um, I try. Um, so I, I try to, um, I try to, honor my staff by not sending emails various times around the clock. Uh Um, and, and I, and I try to do that for a couple of different reasons because I want to honor them and their time with their families. Mm -hmm. Um, and I try to put that on myself too. Like you can't be working around the clock. Um, do I still do it? Yeah, I do sometimes. (laughs) Um, I do. I tend to wake up at like two o'clock in the morning thinking of things and Uh I've learned that rather than tossing and turning in the bed, it's easier for me just to get up and write myself the list and then I can go back to sleep. Um, I, you know, trying to get out, spend time with family, um, weekends, I don't come to school on weekends. Um, I don't, I, I keep my weekends pretty sacred and, um, try really hard not to do schoolwork unless it's absolutely necessary on weekends. Um, now during the week I'm here all the mm-hmm. time, just like, but, um, weekends are kind of my, my sacred time that I don't touch with school stuff. You know, and Chrissy, I think that's important because uh, the, the way you just mentioned that, because I think some people feel like boundaries and balance has to mean a complete 50-50, right? But, but that's one way that you found is that you're giving yourself permission to stay later, you know, throughout the week so that you can completely be off limits on the weekend. And so finding ways that work for in everybody's individual schedule, that's yep. what I think sometimes people think like, oh, I've got to, I've heard that. So I've got to completely replicate that. But people have to find what works for their schedule as long as they are, I think, finding sacred time that work is off limits. Yeah. Yeah. It, and that's, Something that has kind of come over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and and again, there are still, you know, right before school weekends that I'm here. and things, Absolutely. But you, know, <laughs> you try really hard um, to maintain that time so that you have time with your family and, you know, and, and friends and have some time away from school. Yes, yes, yes. And modeling, you know, that that don't send emails at various times. That is one almost every guest I've had this season has said. And so I, I almost feel like that's the message, like everybody's speaking directly to me because I have been incredibly guilty of, you know, I send the email when it's convenient for me, you know, and sometimes that's 11 o'clock at night because I'm just winding down to do that. But listening this season, I've really rethought that, right? Because thinking about the message that it sends on the other side, if I'm sending it at 11 o'clock at night or if I'm sending it at three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, in my mind, I'm not expecting them to read it. I was just sending it because that's the time that was convenient for me. But the but listening to everyone this season, it's like, okay, 
that message that I'm sending to my staff is like, if I'm sending it now, I'm kind of expecting that you're going to look at it now. And so I've really, that's, that's been my real workout on this, 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 I'm not, I'm still a work in progress, but I am working on it. We all are. And you know, I do still send like the random two o'clock in the morning. (laughs) <laughs> because it's on my head, but we've talked. I've talked with my staff. Like, hey, look, I'm only sending this because that's when it's on my mind. And mm-hmm. if I don't send it right now, I'm going to forget. But I do not expect you to do anything with <laughs> with it until you are at school that day. Absolutely. You know, it's been so great this season. Um, me getting to, you know, share everyone's story and, and, and kind of strategies, but I've just enjoyed learning from everyone because I, I know that this job, uh, the only way that we survive is with our professional learning network. And so, you know, that starts with in our own district, in our own state, but then across the nation. So, um, so clearly you and I connected, you know, at the NAESP conference, which was great. Um, and, and, you know, I know you're connected with so many other great leaders across the nation. So when you think about in your time, either people you're connected with on social media or resources or a book you've read or something that you're as you're through your leadership, you think, man, if people are not connected or know about this person and what they do, they need to know who are three, three or four people that you would say are those people. Okay. So the first one is, um, Karen Chenoweth and Karen, um, has, written a book called Extraordinary Districts. Okay. So she researches, um, her first book was about schools that succeed and her more recent book is about districts that succeed. Okay. And so I've had the opportunity to um, meet Karen lots of times. um, And she also has a podcast, um, but she, um, she really knows a lot about education and about helping students who um, might be um, underserved Mm -hmm. in um, some schools and Mm -hmm. ways to promote, um, you know, their growth as well. All right. Who else you got? Uh, Kim Bearden from the Ron Clark Academy. I was able to take a team to the Ron Clark Academy in Atlanta, Georgia this summer. Oh, I saw that on Twitter. I was so jealous. Like forever, I've wanted to go. My staff is obsessed with wanting to have a slide in our lobby because we've heard that they have one there, even though we've not been. So when I saw that you went, I was like, oh, I'm definitely asking her about that if she doesn't bring that up. So tell us more. So it was an amazing experience. Um, we have a house system at our school um, that we implemented right before COVID. So it, we weren't able to do all the things that we wanted to do during COVID. So we really wanted to amp it up this year, which is why we went to visit um, the Ron Clark Academy. Amazing experience. Amazing. We got to observe in their classrooms. I am slide certified. I went down their slide. And, <laughs> um, and when we came back and had our staff development days at the beginning of the year, we had a giant inflatable slide for our new staff to get, well, and experienced staff. We all went down the slide um, at school here. So um, we replicated that at our own school. So it was, it was great. Um, the house system really, um, when they explained it, made complete sense uh-huh. that it is really a tier one um social emotional learning opportunity for our students it's them feeling connected to a family at our school so um that's 
great to know that it goes beyond just being fun and cute and having some competitions, that it really is about, again, those relationships and that connectedness to your school. That's awesome. All right. Do you have a third one for us? I do. My third one is um, from within my own district, um, Carol Levely. Oh, I talked with Carol a few weeks ago. Oh, my goodness. That's what I almost said her name because when you were talking about your story, I was like, that sounds like Carol's story. Well, Carol <laughs> is at my sister's school. So okay. I'm, I'm the kindergarten through second grade. And then my students go to her in third grade. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Listening to her story, uh, literally, as you're talking today, I thought, gosh, that sounds like Carol's story. And so that's how amazing for the two of you all to be so closely connected um, and clearly sharing a lot of these great same leadership strategies that have turned both of your schools around. That's amazing, Chrissy. Yeah. Um, and I feel very blessed that um, because we at Blades, um, I always say we have a sense of urgency for our students um, because they have to be reading when they leave us in mm -hmm. second grade. They have to. Um, and so we talk about that a lot. And so I feel very blessed that the students from my building get to go to such a wonderful school with an amazing leader like Miss Lovely. So um, I'm, I, I feel very fortunate for our students. That is awesome. All right. So if you tell me you've listened to a few episodes, so you know what this last question is. So um, tell me three words that other people who know you, Christy, would use to describe you. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I would say passionate, huh? um, energetic, and probably truthful to a fault. <laughs> mm. You know, it's so funny because uh, sometimes people, I because I, you've probably heard me say this, but this is the question, this is the last interview question in all of our interviews at Kenwood. And so I, it's funny how there are times when somebody's had like an amazing interview and then they'll say something, a word at the end, and we're all kind of looking at them. And then, it, and then they kind of elaborate on that. And so I'm going to ask you, because that last one is one that I would ask you to elaborate on a little bit, because truthful to a fault can almost sound like, oh, what do you mean by that? Um, but clearly it's something that you're proud of. So talk to us about what that means, truthful to a fault. So it goes back to that communication and transparency piece, Jill. So, you know, with staff members being, being truthful, um, being upfront with them, not kind of keeping those secretive decisions behind closed doors and things like that. Um, so I tend, people can tend to see on my face um, <laughs> often. So they'll be like, okay, I know what you mean, you know? Um, so um, I think just being open and communicating and being honest with people um, is, is always where it is. Absolutely. Even when the truth hurts, right? <laughs> Even when the truth hurts. Yes. Absolutely. Well, Chrissy, it's been so great connecting with you again. And thank you for sharing your story. I'm sure, uh, particularly with a K2, I love you talking about that urgency to get them reading. Like we, we try to have that because our kid, our kinder K2s, they turn the hallway to a different hallway when they go three, five, but man, that is a lot of pressure for you, particularly when you're so connected with the principal there. Um, so if, if people want to follow up with you or they've heard something that you've said, they want to dig a little bit deeper with what's the best way to reach you. 
Um, so you can um, reach me on Twitter. Um, that's probably the easiest way or through um, the Blades Elementary Facebook page or by email. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. I know your school year is just getting kicked off. So I want to wish you the most amazing rest of your school year. Um, and hopefully I'll run into you sooner than later, uh, but definitely at the, the NAESP conference next year. Absolutely. I hope you have a great school year, Jill. All right. Thanks. You too, Chrissy. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, Truthful and Transparent Leadership, even when it's hard to hear, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Now, if this is your first episode or you've not listened to any of the other seasons or any of the other episodes in this season, then I encourage you to check it out and let me know what you think. In fact, I'd love for you to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcast because I make it a point to read every single one of the reviews that I get. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to make sure that you're getting automatic episode updates each week. And finally, friends, if we are not connected on Twitter and LinkedIn, let's change that status. Okay, leaders, as you go about this week, I encourage you to ask yourself, are you the leader you deserve and what are you doing about it? Mm-hmm.